Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Tierney, oh le grand pot pour Olivier Furlong, qu'est-ce qu'il lui a fait là Qu'est-ce qu'il lui fait Kieran Tierney Kieran Tierney, c'est quoi C'est quoi ça Il vient souhaiter une très bonne année aux supporters d'Arsenal Kieran Tierney, quel rush Magnifique This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, Andrew. Welcome to 2022. Yeah, it's pretty quiet so far. I don't think much has happened. I'm not sure what we're <laughs> going to talk about on this. It did begin with a bang, didn't it? I mean, oh. wow. What a game to uh, kick off the year with. It really was. And you know what was... When you think about a half-12 game on New Year's Day, when people have been out, I know this year is a bit mm. different. It probably wasn't as raucous in terms of people being out and celebrating and staying out all night because, you know, yeah, because of everything. But, yeah, it was a hell of a game and a hell of an atmosphere and a hell of a performance and uh, such a lot to talk about and such a lot to take from it. And I think what I, I just want to do at the start is just put on record how much I liked and enjoyed the way that we played and the performance and just everything about what we did yesterday. Well, apart from a couple of things, obviously, but but in general, I, I really loved it. I felt um, invigorated by it in a way. I was really encouraged by it. And it's strange to sit here after losing a game, particularly losing a game in pretty heartbreaking fashion, like in the what, the fourth minute of six minutes of injury time, it's a real kick in the bollocks. Mm. But I feel um, positive about what I saw from Arsenal yesterday and encouraged. I think there are, are real signs, you know, that, that something is happening. So while we might go off track a bit and while we might talk about other, th other things and other incidents and whatever... I don't want it to sound like I'm making any excuses for us or anything like that. So just on the record, I fucking loved the way we played yesterday and uh, I wasn't expecting it. Sort of like going to a movie where you think, oh, I'm not, I'm not sure about this one. It turns out to be great. You know, it was, it was way beyond what I expected. That first half in particular, I have to say. Yeah, and I think aspects of the second half, you know, in terms of how we defended mm. with 10 men, you know, in the build-up to a lot of these big games, we've asked ourselves, 
we feared we might lose and we've sort of asked, well, what sort of defeat might be acceptable, if you know what I mean? It's sort of an uncomfortable question, but how can you lose but emerge with hope? And I think Arsenal demonstrated that uh, yesterday. They found that uh, balance. I know we would have all rather Mm. drawn or won, but I think Arsenal played brilliantly and any neutral observer recognises that Arsenal were the better team for the majority of that game uh, and certainly deserved a lot more than they got. So, mm. yeah, it is it is an odd feeling to emerge from a defeat with such a degree of pride. And I can't remember genuinely the last time a losing team got a reaction like that from the fans at full time at the Emirates Stadium. Uh, I, they, I don't feel like there have been too yeah. many kind of noble defeats in the last few years yeah that's true but it came because of what we saw how we did what we did yeah I think you're right to point out that we were certainly the better team with 11 men and I think when we were down to 10 men there was a lot to like about that as well because it's not the first time this season that we've gone down to 10 men against Manchester City and in the first game it fell apart for us you know Mm -hmm. that we did we did not cope at all with being down to 10 men in the first game And I think if you're looking at that first game against City and then this game against Man City and you're using it as a kind of yardstick to measure where we're going, what we've done, what kind of progress we've made, you can really see that. And I, I, you know, you were there and I can't speak for anybody who was there, but certainly the reaction that I saw from the crowd was in no small part. Look, everyone's everyone's sort of riled up. There's a, a sense of injustice, a sense of us against the world. But that wouldn't be quite as strong if we didn't actually deserve something from the game. You know, Mm. the performance, the effort, the endeavor, the commitment of the players with 10 men to defend the way way they defended. You know, we have this pantomime villain, uh, in inverted commas, kind of thing going on with the referee. But but I'm sure people in that ground... um, were like me and maybe not expecting something quite like this against a team as good as Manchester City because we've talked about the gap. We've talked about how far we have to go and we still have, you know, a long way to go and things to improve and all of that kind of stuff. But yesterday, it felt just a little bit like we have closed the gap, even if the result didn't, you know, go our way in the end. When it comes to performance levels, when it comes to um, being competitive against them, I mean, that was kind of toe-to-toe stuff that we engaged in yesterday, and we did not come off um, the worst of it until the sort of the yeah the the bad things happened. Uh, I know yeah. that sounds sort of self uh, self-evident, but you you know what I'm saying. No, I mean, I don't think many teams will do that to Manchester City. You know, the yeah. way in which we kind of uh, took the game to them particularly in, in the kind of the last half hour of the first half, we were absolutely outstanding and they were struggling to live with us at that time. And I, I actually wasn't there yesterday because I was oh. waiting on some COVID uh, test results. So I put my ticket on sale on the ticket exchange um, thing, you know, and it was yeah. quite close to kickoff time. It was only like, I don't know, 10 hours before the game or something like that. And I, I sort of thought, I don't know if this ticket will sell, you know, because mm. it's New Year's Day, it's Man City. Everyone thinks we're probably going to get beat. And it got snapped up straight away off the ticket exchange. Wow. And I thought, 
that's quite encouraging. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that yeah, yeah. Pe- people want to go out and watch this game. There's already a sort of greater sense of excitement and optimism than perhaps I'd anticipated. And speaking to people who were there, I think that stadium, I mean, at halftime, it was absolutely buzzing. I think people were talking about this as one of the best Emirates Stadium performances since we've been in that ground. Um, and I think at full time, yes, there was a great sense of injustice, but as I said before, still an enormous sense of pride. And I think it's really, really encouraging. I think it demonstrates how far we've come. I think in in other ways it demonstrates there's still a, a way to go. Mm. But I think, yeah, it, it speaks to the general sense of direction around the club, which is really positive. And the result is disappointing. But actually it doesn't feel like the most important thing today, to me anyway. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. And it, it is that line between, well, look, you are you can't celebrate defeat. Nobody is saying you can or should celebrate a defeat in any way because ultimately it's about winning. It's about gaining points sure. and everything else. But, you know, you, you'd have to work hard not to look at what we did yesterday and not feel happy and pleased about the way that we played, about what this team is doing together, the way it's growing together, the way it appears to be um, developing in a way perhaps a bit more quickly than we thought. Um, And look, it's not long ago that we were bemoaning what was happening to us after the United game and after the Everton game, but there's a resilience, there's a character. We're playing, I think the kind of football that people have needed to see from Arsenal to truly get on board, if that makes sense, to believe Mm -hmm. in what this project or process, however you want to call it, you know, you can win games, but if you're not convincing people by how you play football, it's going to be difficult. And I think what we've seen this season after those first three games and after that little blip with the United and Everton game, we've seen this team play football that we kind of associate with what we think Arsenal should be, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. And it's not just a style thing. You, you've got to have style. You've got to have substance as well. And we're producing results with it. Um, so, you know, the, the, the encouraging things that were evident in the performance yesterday, like you, they're not completely washed away for me by... Uh, the result, because I think there were some mitigating factors, obviously down to 10 men. It was a very late uh, winner for Manchester City and everything else. But, you know, my 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 sense of pride maybe is the right word in how we acquitted ourselves yesterday is still very strong. It's very strong, even if there are elements about yesterday and the the per, uh, you know the whole thing that that I find frustrating, and I'm sure we'll come to those. Yeah, and and I I my gut instinct says that this performance will actually uh, be remembered. I think people will will remember that moment where Saka scores that goal and he goes into the crowd and there's that you know amazing shot of him hugging the fans. And I don't think all that mm. will be lost. And I think the kind of the manner in which we took the game to the best team in the league, um, I think will be something we're still reflecting on come May, come the end of the season. And hopefully it provides a bit of a, a platform for the next stage in this team's development, mm. which which seems to be accelerating, like you said. Do you think like the, the pictures of the the pictures of the players 
yesterday at at the final whistle, they were absolutely, absolutely gutted uh, yeah. to, to within an inch of their lives. And there were, you know, there's a shot of Ramsdale helping Ben White up off the ground and Jack is standing there with his head bowed and Tommy Asu is looking absolutely crestfallen and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, do you think they will benefit or will take something from this game in terms of their own belief and their own confidence that, you know, we, we have had an issue this season and um, maybe going back a bit in the big games where you're looking to to measure yourselves against the very best, to gauge how far you have to go and you get pumped by Man City in the, in the, uh, the first game this season, mm-hmm. albeit with 10 men. We also had 10 men yesterday and didn't get pumped. You know, the Liverpool game, another one where we're going, just be competitive. Maybe we don't expect you to win this game, but don't make it easy for them. Make them work for whatever it is they get from the game. And um, we didn't. But this game, we absolutely did. Man City had to work um, really hard to get three points. I don't think they deserved three points um, at all. Uh, but they really, really had... It was a struggle for them yesterday. It was a struggle, even with 10 men. You know, yeah. think about what what um, what did Aaron Ramsdale have to do No, yesterday? he didn't make save, really, in the game. Exactly. It, you know, he couldn't do anything about the goal and the penalty is a penalty, but, you know, the the players in front of him yesterday worked so hard to prevent danger that when the ball did come towards him, he really had very little to do, uh, apart from a couple of good good uh, crosses and takes, you know, from corners or set pieces or whatever it was. You know, he really didn't have very much to do. And that tells you how hard Arsenal worked to keep Man City at bay and how effective mm. it was. Yeah, I think we defended well in the game. I thought, you know, Tommy Asu was particularly good. I thought he was outstanding, actually. Um, yeah, you're, you're right. The keeper was not worked very much at all and not many teams will say that against Man City I mean I I hope they can take a lot from this they were gutted at full time Mm. as was I I think if we were recording this podcast on the full time whistle maybe I wouldn't yet be in this place of kind of pride and looking at the positives because there was a lot of uh, anger and frustration and disappointment I probably would have been you know calling for um, somebody's head on a spike. Maybe, uh, who's that guy? Uh, Peter Walton's head on a spike. Something like that. But um, <laughs> It'd stop him talking absolute bullshit anyway. But uh, Yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I think, I hope they can use it. And actually, a bit of a sense of injustice. It's not the worst thing. No. Not the worst ingredient for a team. No. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, the, the, the us against them. And, yeah. And I think... This will come up, I think, when we talk about the refereeing decisions. But that uh, that that sense of injustice, this they're out to get us thing, can forge a kind of solidarity and togetherness within a squad that can be very useful if you can harness that in the right way. If you feel like you've been fucked over by the opposition, by whatever, by the officials, by VAR, by you know, whatever, and you can use that and you can turn that into a positive. I'm absolutely sure that on the training ground um, this week, Mikel Arteta will be will be using that as much as possible and saying, look at what you did in that game. Mm. Look at how you played. Look at how you competed. Look how, um, how, 
how hard you worked and how rewarded you were because of that uh, in terms of uh, the overall performance. Um, I know the result didn't go our way. It just fell right at the death. And that's really unfortunate and really heartbreaking. But he will be accentuating the many, many positives from this game. And there were loads of them. So let's delve into a, a few specifics before we go into the, the, the truly dark stuff, um, which we're going to have to talk about. But where do you start? I mean, Thomas Partey played the best game he's ever played for us <laughs> yesterday. And the irony yeah. of that, of course, is that he's going away to um, to AFCON now. And we don't have him for a few weeks. Uh, so that's great timing. But it really was the kind of performance that you need from a player like him if you are going to do what we did in that game against that kind of opposition. This is what you need from him. And he was absolutely outstanding. Yeah, he was brilliant. I, I, I think it was a great collective performance, but I, for me, Tommy Asso and Partey were the outstanding individuals. And uh, he was sensational in midfield. I mean, I think he was in 15 duels, one more than half of them. Collision after collision, his use of the ball was intelligent. There was that moment in the second half where he went on that run up the left wing. I don't know if you remember, but kind of carried mm. the ball almost single-handedly up the field. Um, he was really excellent. I think this was up there, if not better than his performance at Old Trafford last season. I agree. Yeah. The issue has been consistency. I think a big issue recently has been confidence. And I, I think we saw some of that returning to him yesterday. Um, yeah, it's happened over looked, the last few weeks, hasn't it? We, yeah. We've talked about it. was this. good at Norwich. Yeah. Um, it's been, uh, it has happened over the last few weeks. I think playing with Odegaard, playing with Shaka has helped him a bit in that regard. Mm. But he was great. It's a tremendous loss, actually, to lose him right now. Um, just mm. at the moment, he appears to have clicked and he will feel it all the more keenly because of what a great performance this was against let's say it, a brilliant midfield in its own right in Manchester yeah. City's team. Who else do you want to talk about on an individual basis? It seems a bit um, harsh because the collective performance was great, but can I just, um, before you maybe pick the man who scored the goal, probably. Yeah, sure. Um, can I just give a, a shout to Tommy Asu? Uh, because I think mm. um, the impact that he has had on this team maybe goes a little bit um, under the radar. Uh, he has sort of been a game changer in that position for us when we talked about right back. Um, you know, we had imperfect options going into this season. Um, you know, Hector is gone, but Callum Chambers was never really a long-term option for me. Cedric, definitely not a long-term option. Ainsley Maitland-Niles, not a long-term option uh, and didn't, um, you know, wasn't being picked there anyway. So we had an issue in that position and it was one of those things that we had to, to deal with via the transfer market. And he has been an absolutely outstanding purchase. The consistency... Uh, is amazing. And yesterday, um, he really had Sterling bang to rights every single time physically uh, in terms of his positioning, his pace, his defensive awareness. He is just a brilliant defender. So, you know, before we go on and talk about other people, I, I wanted to give him a shout because I thought he was just fantastic. Yeah, Arsenal really found a gem there in the transfer yeah. market and they... They took a slight gamble on a player that others maybe had been reluctant to take and they've been really rewarded for it. He's been um, outstanding. And I think 
the greatest testament to him would probably be to ask Ben White or Bukayo Saka, say, what they think of Tomiyasu. And I, I bet they would eulogise about him because mm. he is the kind of player who makes other players look better by providing solidity, by providing a platform. Um, I actually think Albert Stovenberg... Uh, spoke about him in in one of his interviews around the game. I think he was asked about his performance and he was very positive about him. You know, sometimes Arteta is a bit reticent to go into individuals, but mm. he talk, he spoke about, it was when he came back into the team, that was it, about the stability that he brings. And that's such an underrated quality in, in the team, especially in the defence. I also think that um, we should consider that this is a guy who's just coming back from COVID, who even if he didn't have symptoms, was not able to train with the group. He's had to train on his own, essentially, in isolation to retain his fitness, mm. come straight back into the side, very little training, a couple of days training, I think, beforehand, and produces a performance like that against yeah. Raheem Sterling, who's a very difficult player to mark, whose movement is outstanding. Yeah, he he's just been great. And, um, I, I mean, you know, he, he's completely changed our perception of not just that position, but that entire side of the pitch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I can't speak highly enough about him. Um, let's talk about the goal then. Very nice goal. Lot to like about it, the way that we um, won the ball back. I think it was Ben White made a good tackle on Kevin De Bruyne, sparked mm-hmm. the attack. Granit Xhaka, good first-time pass forward uh, into mm-hmm. Odegaard. And that's not always been... Shaka's wheelhouse, you know, mm-hmm. that's not to be critical, but, you know, he is sometimes a bit, um, you know, I, I can think of many occasions where the ball has come to Granit Shaka in that position and it's gone backwards or sideways and people have, you can hear the moans from the crowd because they want us to go forward. And I thought one aspect, and I know we'll have to talk about another aspect of his performance yesterday was, was how quickly he moved the ball. Um, yeah. Whether that's, whether it was just the day that was in it, whether that's something, you know, he's been instructed to do, I don't quite know, but he used the ball much more quickly, fewer touches. Um, maybe that's what you got to do in a game against Manchester City. You know that if you take a few touches of the ball, they're going to close you down. So the instruction might well have been when you get it, look for the look for the option quickly. Odegaard then to Tierney, lovely ball from Tierney, nice bit of play from Lacazette as well, just to stand in front of of Nathan Ake. So Saka mm. had the Saka had the angle and what a lovely finish, just controlled uh, into the bottom corner. Great goal. Yeah, yeah, really great goal. Beautifully worked. Uh, we've spoken about Lacazette's work off the ball, the kind of things he does that are uh, show a little bit of experience and canniness. I thought it was a really good block off from him to let Saka get the shot away. Mm. Good finish too. You know, we hoped that a couple of goals against Norwich is something he could carry into the next few games and he seemed to have it, the composure in that moment. And yeah, a good forward pass from Saka in the build-up, first time as well around the corner. I think you have to look at it and say... When, when he plays that pass, actually, it's so important. Both Lacazette and Odegaard have taken up, uh, you know, essentially the same position. They're sort mm. of playing as a little pair of number 10s directly in front of him. And when you've got those guys buzzing around those areas in that space, in between the lines of the opposition, then it's easier to play those forward passes because mm. they're the target. And, you know, working in tandem, they've really helped us. Um and there's a lovely shape about the attack with Lacazette and Odegaard kind of dropping in and Martinelli and Saka spinning out and using width and playing very high. Mm. Yeah, it was a great goal. Um, 
and just a brilliant moment, really. I mean, it felt like the culmination of weeks of progress, you know, to take the lead in, in sort of deserving fashion yeah. against this Man City team. The place from the television pictures seemed to absolutely erupt. Yeah, I mean, what I liked about this first half in particular was that, like, early on in the game, the first couple of minutes, it was a bit sort of... Um, possession for both sides and then Manchester City started to do the thing that they do which is Mm. just this relentless possession that suffocates you that is hard to cope with Uh, you know I don't find them an enjoyable team uh, to play against obviously because it's been so difficult against them I don't find them a particularly enjoyable team to watch even if they're playing somebody else it's just that whatever that style of football is but we got back into the game. We didn't allow them, which I thought was really great, um, a really nice aspect to our performance, that we did not allow them to push us back and push us back and push us back. And we went forward as quickly as we could in those moments when we got the ball back. We started to go forward, which I think had some impact on the way that City were set up themselves. Um, So to sort of make sure that the balance didn't tip completely towards City and you end up going in at halftime going, well, it'd be nice if we could, you know, hang on to the ball for more than, you know, three or four passes at a time. Um, You know, to really be on top in that first period, um, you know, maybe there was some fatigue or whatever with City. Pep was talking about how they were so, so tired, so tired. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, you know, we had to respond and we had to react. And I think the competitiveness in the duels, winning second balls, um, you know, just not allowing City to do what they do. The players deserve an awful lot of credit for that. Yeah, I think we play with great aggression. And I don't mean that in the Mm. physical sense. I mean that in the kind of dynamic way in which we attacked. So the positioning of Martinelli and Saka was really aggressive. The runs they made in behind, into space, were aggressive. And that just gave City a problem all the time. Uh, They were worried about those two for that entire first half and with good reason. And yeah, we we responded well to, like you say, a, a period of some possession from them early in the game, which looked like they might settle into a rhythm. We didn't allow that to be the case. We disrupted things. When we got the ball, we really attacked with purpose. Um, Yeah, it was just a really great performance and the team were flying at that point. Yeah. A nearly day for Gabriel Martinelli, I think we have to say, and we've got to talk about uh, him, obviously. But, you know, the really encouraging uh, aspects to his performance um, there was a shot which curled just over the top corner. There was that brilliant run where uh, I think maybe a little fortuitously the ball came back to him when I think Cancelo That's had right. got uh, in front of him and he shot just wide. You know, that kind of positivity, that kind of intent to go at Manchester City was great to see. Um, and, and I suppose we'll have to talk about um, the other miss in a moment. But, I mean, do we go on now to the second half? And Just to say on Martinelli, I do think there were moments where uh, he could have been slightly more refined in what he produced. There was one where he went through on the left-hand side and I think if he'd squared it, Saka looked like he might have got onto mm. it. He went for the shot instead. But all that said, it's very difficult to be critical of a player whose first instinct is to go for goal because he is generally a good finisher and 
there is something so direct about the way he plays that's really added mm. to this team. So I do think there's an extent to which you have to take a little bit of rough with all the smooth that he brings in that role. And I'm not, you know, I think he had five shots on the day um, and nobody else in this team gets close to that, really. And no. I think that's the threat that he carries. So, look, we'll come to his... Um, other miss in a moment. Uh, I guess we'll get to that that crazy few minutes, right, yeah. where the game swung on its yeah. head. So, yeah, I mean, it was all going great until it wasn't. Um, mm. So, the first... I mean, we haven't even talked about the the Odegaard penalty incident. But I well, get, I think it's sort of difficult to discuss one without the yeah, other, isn't it? It is. So, penalty for you? The Odegaard one? Yeah. I think so, but I, but in fairness, I would have required a lot of replays to reach that assessment. What do you think? I thought in real time, absolutely a penalty. Yeah, and I think that's interesting. Yeah, and I'll come on to that later. But what did you think based on the replay? Less conclusive until I saw the replay at half time that they showed yeah. that they didn't show during the uh, the game itself. And there's a replay at half time which shows that Edison clearly gets Odegaard's foot and then the ball. So yeah. that made my mind up for me. I think that's absolutely a penalty and I would be, well, I am disgusted <laughs> that we didn't get it. I, I'm, I think it's a wrong decision. Um, I don't know why in real time the referee didn't blow for it. Was he just well, waiting I, I, I to see? I have a theory on this. Go on. Yeah, I, 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 th I feel... Because I, I, my gut instinct is that in real time, in in a pre-VAR era, I think the referee blows for that, and I and I and I think he probably blows for the other one as well. Basically, well, my sense is, I um, okay. he's deferring. That's my that's my well, sense. You see, okay, well, I would have to disagree very slightly in the sense that for the second one, he absolutely is definitive in his action, when he looks at what happens and when he sees the way that Silva falls, he's gesture, gesturing at him like, come on, no, get up, get up. That's not a penalty. So I don't think in that mm, instance true. he was he was um, awaiting VAR at all. I think he'd made his mind up on the spot. Now, he would know that if he's made a, a, a mistake, um, you know, VAR can call it back and have a look at it. But he was quite definitive when you look at the replays. He gestures at him a number of times to get up as if to say, no, 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 that's not enough contact uh, for a penalty. Um, mm. True. Yeah, I, I had forgotten that. I just feel that, well, yeah, that was my my impression watching the Odegaard one. I felt like he'd hedged his bets and let VAR yeah, look I, at I, it. Yeah, I do agree with that. I agree with that. Where do you stand on... The Xhaka one, is it a penalty for you or is it not? I think it is, personally. Mm. I think it is. I think it is as well. I mean, it is... And you're talking to a man, who, uh, uh, an ungainly man who played left-back for many years and has been turned inside out like that many a time. It, it's clumsy, isn't it? It really yeah. is. Um, and I think he did dive, but, I, you know, applying my... Would that have been? Would I be uh, unhappy if that wasn't given to us? Metric, I absolutely would. I mean, I think if if Bakayo Saka turns Nathan Ake like that and he hangs a leg out and grabs his shirt on the way down, 
we would be absolutely fuming if that penalty wasn't given. Yeah, my instant reaction in real time actually was penalty and nothing I saw in the replays really dissuaded me of that. I know he's going down. I think what seals it for me is the is the tug. Like the, the leg comes out and that's problematic. But if the player's already on his way down, I think there's a chance you get away with that. The tug, to me, is unnecessary and I have no idea why he's doing it. Well, it's because he's... He is who he yeah, is. Yeah, of course. Apart from the obvious. He yeah. he, he he granites, therefore he shackers. Yeah. yeah. But apart from that. So I so I think penalty. But then of course you get onto the conversation of the review process. Yeah. Well, exactly. And this is where I think the real frustration comes in because why was that one looked at and the Odegaard one wasn't looked at? Uh, and this this situation we have where, you know, the, the wording about clear and obvious error is just a... It's absolute nonsense. It's a penalty or it isn't. It's a foul or it isn't. Um, if a referee makes a mistake because he can't see something in a split second when camera angles can show him something different, then use that. You know, use it to make the right decision, not whether a referee has made a clear and obvious error. It's a way for them to hide behind inconsistency. It drives me absolutely crazy. And I think there was a good point um, somebody made on on Twitter here. Uh, Martin Webb, he said, VAR took multiple angles for Odegaard, somehow concluding it wasn't a foul, but for Xhaka, Atwell was only shown one angle on the monitor. Other angles showed that he was already going down before the shirt pull. Um... I think VAR showed him the most, how do I put this, the one that looked most like a penalty and not all the others. Sure, the most incriminating. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, and I think the question of why, you know, BT on their coverage in the UK produced this half-time view of the Edison Challenge where it looked very clearly like a penalty. Yeah. In in fairness, from the other angles, it was much less clear. Um but why was that angle not the one assessed when we were watching the, the VAR footage, if you see what I mean? Well, surely VAR uh, have that angle, right? VAR must have all the angles. Are we right to assume that, that they have all the, all the possible angles to look at something? Yeah, it, I think if the TV cameras have access to it, I think we can assume VAR do as well. It, it, it's, but the problem is, in my opinion, uh, you say it's either a foul or it's not a foul. But the issue is that there is always human interpretation, right? And and essentially what we've done is outsource that from a guy on the pitch with a whistle to a guy in a studio. But he's still a guy with an interpretation. And unfortunately, that's always going to have a margin for I, a significant margin for error. I, right? I, I don't know what interpretation you need when a goalkeeper goes sliding in, kicks the opponent's foot and in doing so, projects the ball away. He doesn't make a good, clean tackle. Like, literally, that is a free kick anywhere else on the pitch. If that incident happens, this is not something that is... I don't think it's subjective. I don't think it needs to be interpreted. It's either, did he kick his foot or did he not? Did he kick the ball first or did he kick Odegaard first? The replay show he kicked Odegaard first. That's a foul. It's in the box. Therefore, it's a penalty. I know what you're saying about that in 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 
other aspects and certain other uh, situations and scenarios which aren't quite as clear cut. But this was, this is not something that's open to interpretation as far as I'm uh, concerned. I know what you mean. I guess the issue is that if he's looking at the same stuff we're looking at, what we were looking at immediately after that penalty appeal wasn't as clear as that. Mm. And so the question is, what, 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 why is he looking at the wrong thing, I guess? Also, I, personally, I find the charade of like, now the referee has to go and look at the screen. If the referee goes to look at the screen, the decision's already made. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, those referees aren't overturning those decisions when they're told to look at the screen. Yeah. So, so I find all that sort of pantomime of well, he's going yeah. to look over at it, but he never changes his mind. It's a bit odd. It's, look... I'm being very cynical when I say this, and I said this on Twitter, and I said this in the blog today, but the Premier League is an entertainment medium. It's a sport, but it's a thing. Um, if decisions are being made that are designed to create drama and all of that kind of stuff, I wouldn't be at all surprised. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's a bit like F1. I don't really follow F1 particularly closely, but um, I've never heard F1 talked about as much as when there was that huge controversy in the final race of the season. I don't know how aware of this you are. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm aware of it and I'm not an F1 fan. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. that's how these incidents can become sensational news stories in their own right. I don't doubt that VAR does good numbers on social media. I don't doubt that for a second. Mm. But um, as a fan in a stadium, it's incredibly frustrating. I think as a fan at home, it's pretty frustrating too because we're not... We're guessing at, at what's going on. We don't know the dialogue. As we're becoming clear in this conversation, we don't know what they have access to, why they're choosing to view certain angles and not certain others. Yeah, It's, it's opaque, well, exactly, exactly. And I think the only way that that you can improve it is to make it transparent. And I think that, that applies to referees and the PGMOL as well, that, that there needs to be greater transparency about decision-making. Why can't the referees be mic'd up? Why can't we hear what their thought processes are? Why can't we hear mm. the communication when something like this is going on between the referee and whoever's in the fucking room in Stockley Park, you mm. know? Um, it, it's, yeah, it's infuriating. It really is. Um, that, that sense of injustice is fueled by the fact that they got to have theirs reviewed by the referee and we did not. And nobody knows precisely why that's the case. Yeah. So when there's... When there's a lack of information, we do the colouring in ourselves, um, and maybe yeah, we uh, maybe we delve into theories and stuff that don't really add up. But you know, that's on them to 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 fix. And when I talk about that subjectivity and that human error, it comes around that conversation of clear and obvious error, right? Ultimately, a bloke in a room watching clips on a screen is deciding that's a clear and obvious error and that's not. Mm. And that is where the vagueness surely is problematic. Yeah, like, yeah, that's, you think you've nailed it there. They're deciding what's a clear and obvious error rather than 
looking at the incidents on their own merits yeah. in relation to the laws of foul. the game. Yeah, the rules yeah. of the game, the laws of the game. So, I mean, look, there were a few things yesterday um, about the referee's performance. There was a, a fairly uh, rigorous foul. Um, it was accidental. I think it was Rodri, wasn't it, on Martinelli mm. on the edge of the box, and he gave a corner. He gave a corner. You know, mm. that that kind of thing. That, that was fucking off the charts on the, if that was Granite Xhaka scale. Um, <laughs> it, it genuinely was. Like, if Xhaka had gone career, this is maybe a question that we'll keep for part two. But, you know, there there is, um, I think, it is an interesting discussion to be had about Xhaka and the way that he is refereed and, you know, how, how you, you deal with that. But there were incidents, obviously, um, where Manchester City players made fouls and weren't censured and weren't booked and it seemed that every time an Arsenal player batted their eyelids the yellow card was coming out Saka got booked Holding got booked Gabriel got booked for what was uh, described afterwards as a normal remark Um, Mm. and what we what I think it was was asking why wasn't the the Arsenal penalty reviewed and the Manchester City one was. So it was in the wake of that incident. There's a few stories about, you know, whether it was scuffing up the penalty spot. There's a clip of him being pushed into the referee and maybe the referee booked him then, but I don't think that was it. I think it was. No, uh, no. It was when he ran up to the referee and said something in the immediate aftermath mm. of the penalty. I mean, we're always hearing his English isn't particularly good, so I'd be curious to know what he said. Um, yeah. I hope it was... I hope, yeah. Well, Maybe yeah, his English is better than St- we... Steinberg said it was a normal remark. It wasn't abusive. There wasn't any swearing or anything like that. So he's on a, a yellow card, which could be described as, as soft. And then we have this 30 seconds, which just changed the game. Just on that first booking for Gabriel, mm. I think if you look at it, the, the referee actually is surrounded by a couple of other Arsenal players and already has his card out, like out of his pocket. Mm. And Gabriel then runs over and says something and the referee just sort of shows him, him the card. It's like, I'm going to book one of you for this. Book someone, yeah. Exactly. And Gabriel volunteers himself essentially by charging in. But it's... I doubt very much it's particularly related to the specific words that Gabriel used. I think it was more of a booking for the team for their collective show of dissent. But even of that's course. bullshit, isn't it? You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. But I'm just explaining what I think happened. Right. But then uh, we could have taken the lead, right? Yeah, we could have taken the lead. I mean, I'm not trying to make any excuses for Gabriel Martinelli, but I think many people have noticed this and we had a little chat about it. You know, mm. what what is the referee doing in there? What is he doing? And at this level of football, split seconds can mean a lot. You know, Mm. the fact that Martinelli had to adjust and go around him, you know, I I still think he should score from where he is, from that angle. But the referee doesn't help either. Yeah, what he's doing is... Try so the the, the ball is headed over uh, Edison and it's heading towards the goal line, and the referee sprints towards the goal line to see if the ball was going to go over the line. It seems to me, anyway, mm, yeah, but that's yeah. the one thing he doesn't need any interpretation for. There's literally going to be a buzzer that goes off or not if it goes over the line. Exactly. So get out the way. It definitely affects the way Martinelli approaches the ball. Yeah, obviously he should still score. Um, but it wasn't helpful, that's for sure. But I mean, yeah, I mean that is a moment as well on which the game turns because if Arsenal 
go back in front there. Who knows what happens? But well, I, I tell you what doesn't happen is we don't go down to ten men in the in the very next passage of play. Yeah, that's true. What What's your view on that? The Gabrielle sending yeah. off. Um, I think it's really unfortunate to be sent off for those two yellow cards. I do, especially the first one, given that it seemed like he barely did anything. All the stuff about the penalty spot, I think, was a complete red herring that mm. BT latched onto that was nothing to do with why he got booked. Um, you know, Ramsdale scuffed up the penalty spot as well. You know, it, I, I think it goes on every time a penalty is awarded in every game, in every mm. division, pretty much. I, I think that having been booked, he took a risk in a big way doing that. And he should have... I think it speaks to a bit of a loss of composure from mm. the team after the feeling of injustice around the penalty. Yeah, I think he was really fired up, to be honest. Yeah. He was really heated up after the penalty. They're feeling that sense of injustice, like you say, and he just lost his composure for a couple of minutes. Yeah. Maybe in another two or three minutes, he would have settled down and calmed down. I think so. I've, I've watched it again and again and again, and, and it's a... It's a very deliberate foul. You know, it yeah, really you, you is. Know, he, knows, he knows he's bucking the guy there. Yeah, like, I know there's an element of it looks a little bit accidental or what can he do to get out of the Standing way? Standing his ground. Yeah, but he doesn't really, he sort of, when you look at it again, there's an arm in the face and across his chest and then he pulls his hands away. Like, he knows that's, that's, a, that's a very deliberate foul. Um, and on a yellow card, you, you know, you just can't. Do you remember you him getting... Um, it was like, it's it, almost exactly the same as yeah. the red card he got last season against Southampton. It was a foul on Theo Walcott. Pretty much the same kind of foul as well. Yeah, Although almost I think, identical I, as I, think, I remember. It. I think that, that one against Southampton was a lot... Um, yeah, it felt a lot more harsh, I think, anyway. Um, the Southampton one than this one. But uh, yeah, sa same area of the pitch, same kind of incident, second yellow card. Um, yeah, a weird I, I symmetry. Think, yeah, it, it is an odd symmetry. I, I basically think that Arsenal, after they conceded that penalty, I just think emotions ran high. And I, I think that, you know, what they needed was somebody... <laughs> It's not an easy job, but somebody to say, you know, let's all just, mm. you know, chill, stay in the game. It doesn't help that the guy who's probably the obvious leader on the pitch, Granit Schnacker, is the guy who conceded the penalty. So it's as involved in that emotionally as everybody mm. else, if not more so. You know, and yeah, it was unwise from Gabriel. Um and potentially quite costly. I mean, again, it's pretty difficult to predict. There's a funny thing about going down to 10 men there. Like, it, obviously it hurts Arsenal, but on a, in another way, it made the task very clear. And I think it, you know, the lack of openness from us going forward um, presented Man City with a different problem in a way. Yeah, I mean, look, all you can do at that point of a game with half an hour to go against Manchester City is is stay organised, stay compact, yeah. keep your shape, defend well. And look, we did that. We really did that. We talked about it at the, at the top of this until, like, right at the death. Um, 
that goal goes in. I mean, I have to say, it's not a good header from Rob Holding. Um, it's bad defending actually all round, I think, on that goal. Like, you could see it, couldn't you? When De Bruyne had the ball and he lifted it, it looked like trouble straight away. Sesk tweeted, did you see Sesk's tweet no. about this? Sesk tweeted saying, when De Bruyne has the ball in that position, you have to drop off as a defender because you know he can drop it in behind you. And just Rob Holding... Yeah, and, and to be fair, the ent- the entire back four don't really drop off. And Thomas Partey, who was brilliant on the day, and I'm not knocking any individual, doesn't really follow Rodri into the box when he goes beyond him. Mm. And they get a break. They get such a break, even yeah. then. It's a horrible goal. It's a gut-wrenching goal to concede. Such a scabby fucking goal, all right. I know, I know. And from a player who got away with a fair amount in the game. I think that's the thing about, you know, as much as we could talk about the individual refereeing decisions and and some of them were really infuriating, I think the, the overall thing about the game is it feels like there were so many 50-50 moments that didn't go our way. Yeah. So I, I would include the two penalty appeals, maybe you could say Gabriel sending off, certainly the Martinelli chance, and even the way the ball ricochets for them mm. in the 93rd minute to nick it, it feels like across those, we didn't really get any breaks. No, no rubber the green at all. No, and that's why it's like pretty infuriating, you know. you just If one or two of those things goes our way instead of theirs, there's just no way in hell we lose this game. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think if we stay with 11 men, it wouldn't have been impossible for us to win that game either. We were playing that well and we were making chances and, you know, City, they weren't as good um, as I've seen them in the past, but I think that primarily was down to us and how good we were and how well we managed the game and how well we managed the various threats that they have. So Mm. I think another thing just to point out, of course, is that, you know, Mikel Arteta wasn't there. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure, like all of us, are sitting watching his TV going absolutely mental. Uh, God, imagine. <laughs> uh, but his kids must be terrified. He was locked in the in a room somewhere in his house. Yeah, they must yeah. have been thinking, Jesus, what's going on there? But the preparation, the organization, the the work that they've done on the training ground, the the clarity of, you know, his instructions. I guess because a lot of this would have been down to him. Um, you know, the way that he wanted to approach the game and how he felt we should play. And it was interesting. I spoke um, on the preview podcast to Lewis and we were talking about previous encounters with Manchester City when Arteta has tried to do something that nobody expected, tried Mm. to play a little wild card, if you like. And there was none of that. There was Mm. none of that for this. It was like, this is what has worked. This is what we've been doing well. Let's go and do that against Manchester City and we did I think it's a really big credit to the team and the staff you know missing the manager is not um, insignificant and I bet it'll be talked about a lot today Chelsea are about to play Liverpool this afternoon and Jurgen Klopp's not going to be there on the sidelines Um I think I think the way that and, and it's not just Arteta as well, other senior coaching staff mm. have not been present on the training pitch. The preparation the focus, the concentration of the team was all excellent. The team deserved massive credit too for, you know, uh, for that, for mm. their part in that. 
And I, I thought it was a, yeah, I thought it was a credit to the club the way that the way that that did not feel like a factor in the game. Yeah. To be frank with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's, I think that's a fair point. Um, what else to say? I mean, it, yeah. it's it was a bad day of football yesterday, wasn't it? Because mm. uh, not <laughs> only did we suffer that late uh, heartbreak, but. Um, Spurs got a late winner. I mean, did you see the the penalty that Watford didn't get? I haven't. I haven't. I'm surely there's. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. I mean, it's another crazy one where. Really? Yeah. Where the hell is it? I sort of couldn't bear to watch what I assumed would be a Spurs win. I can see some stills of it. It's uh, uh, it a guy be- going around Larice, right? Yeah, and he knocks the ball around him. Um, let me see if I can find it for you here. Is this the clip? I don't want to just play. Oh, I've got it. I've got it. Don't yeah, worry. Yeah, yeah. Have a look at this. So I'm watching it now. Have a look at. I mean, what the fuck? We can talk about VAR from our own perspective, and and people will say, well, you're only saying that because, um, you know, it's happened to Arsenal. But like, you've got. I mean, to be- that's clearer cut than <laughs> anything ridiculous. from our game. Isn't it ridiculous? Wow. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. And then obviously West Ham went and beat uh, mm. what was a very poor Crystal Palace team until the final 10 minutes. Um, so the results weren't good. But nonetheless, I did come away from the game and particularly today in the sort of cold light of day, I feel um, very energised by what Arsenal produced. Yeah, uh, we've got more refereeing discussions and questions and stuff in part two. But as I said at the top... You know, our frustration with that shouldn't take away from how good we were yesterday. And I know that there'll be some people saying, well, you you can't be good if, you know, in some ways you're the architects of your own downfall. You know, the penalty, the red card, bad defending for the for the winner, albeit I think you're right to say they got a, a quite a lucky break with how that ball ricocheted. But, yeah, you have to, you have to look at it the entirety of what we did yesterday. And I don't think, genuinely, I don't think many people thought we could do that against Man City. And I include myself in that. I include myself in that. So if that's your perspective going into this game, the fact that we could do it should be hugely encouraging. How we respond now, how resilient we are. We've talked about character and needing to, to bounce back and everything else. But... It's another it's another little step forward, even if in result terms it's a step backwards. Definitely. Definitely. Right. And and I think um yeah, like I say, I, I can't remember a time where after losing a game I've still had that sort of residual mm. feeling of pride. So yeah, I think that's that's definite progress. All right. Well look, let's take a short break and then come back because there are plenty of questions um, and lots more to talk about. So we'll do that in part two right after this. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. I'm going to start, James, if you don't mind. And mm-hmm. this first question comes from DTDC Gooner, who says, at what point do we just accept that this is what the officiating is, that it will be a chaotic inconsistent and occasionally unfair staple of the game the officiating can't be shocking if it's like this every week we can't change it when do we move to accepting it uh i mean that's completely personal isn't it i like i am generally very accepting of it because it's just uh part of the game you know with, with or without var whether i like it or not is a separate fact. It's it's something that we have to contend with, and frankly, I think that most teams have to contend with. I, I don't personally subscribe to the belief that there's kind of an anti-Arsenal uh, agenda within the PGMOL or anything like that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm already in that place of acceptance. Right. It doesn't mean it doesn't annoy me, but there, football fans will always be aggravated by decisions. Sure. But why why can't we change it? Why well okay, me and you and people out there can't change it. But why can't it be changed? Why should we accept that it is what it is and not seek for it to be better and to improve it? You know what I mean. This is where I'm coming from with this because I do think that there is, uh, um, you know, with the introduction of VAR, we are now experiencing an entirely new raft of problems that VAR was supposed to fix, if you know what I mean. It's highlighting the inconsistency and in interpretations, as we spoke about a little bit earlier on. But, you know, there there is, I believe, um, significant room for improvement when it comes to refereeing and how games are refereed. And I don't, I'm not saying this just from an Arsenal perspective. I think if you look across the league and that Watford incident that we just spoke about at the end of part one is a perfect example of that. Of mm-hmm. It's not just happening to Arsenal. It is happening across the league. But why should a decision as uh, egregiously wrong as that not spark some kind of... Um, Punishment is the wrong word, but there is a lack of accountability among the PGMOL and the referees, right? That everybody in this sport, from chairman, well, not all of them, but, you know, uh, managers, players, coaches, they're all accountable based on the level of their performance, 
You know, uh, if you don't play well, the club is going to sell you. If a manager doesn't win games, he's going to get sacked. You know, if a goalkeeper doesn't make saves, they go out and buy a new goalkeeper. Literally, you are judged on how well you do at the job that you're doing. But that's not there for referees. And uh, there was an interesting uh, conversation with uh, Gunnar Punner, uh, at Gunnar Punner yesterday on, on Twitter, and he's saying, improve the salary of referees. Like, if you if you make the salaries better, you will get people coming along uh, and saying, well, this is a, a decent career path. I'm interested in this, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, it, you know, all that will do, unless you provide transparency from the top of the organization that, that runs the refereeing in the Premier League and in England, then it's just going to make their little cozy cartel a bit richer. So yeah. I think you have to... You can't just accept when something is bad. And I think most people will accept an element of chaos or random or, or you know, refereeing being a little bit different from one game to the next in a sport because it's all fast moving. Like there, there is surely a, a margin for human error that everybody accepts. But I think most people are able to talk about refereeing and officiating at this moment in time and say, the standards aren't good. And, and that's whether you're an Arsenal fan, a Liverpool fan, I'm sure even Manchester City fans at some point this season will talk about refereeing not being good, despite the fact that, you know, they seem to have the referee on side yesterday. Um, but this sort of blithe acceptance that we should just say, well, that, OK, they're terrible, but that's part of the fun? I don't think so. I, I I don't know how you change it exactly. I don't know how you go about but I don't accept that it's something that we should just sit back and say, well, this week it could be good. Next week it's going to be terrible. You know, I, I just don't. Uh, the thing is that I sort of think that, uh, bear in mind, I'm not pro-VAR. I would never have advocated for its introduction. Mm. But from what I understand, the objective... Um, assessment indicates that the, the the percentage of correct decisions has substantially gone up i'd love to see the figures on that i mean i'm not doubting are, you they I, exist i know i know they, i know they, they do I, exist i know i know i know i know i'm just saying i'd love to see them i wasn't doubting you or anything like that i just say yeah like I, but the thing is like i don't really care that they've gone up like to me that's not my priority weirdly enough like my thing with refereeing is not that i expect kind of objective uh, flawlessness yeah I, I'm I'm relaxed about it like my thing of a referee is like I want them to um, manage games if you see what I mean like I, I'm much more concerned with the um, the overall dynamics of a game than the minutiae of an individual decision mm. and I think that that is more important to me to making like an interesting mm. or entertaining football spectacle. But I, I also think that, uh, I mean, when, it, yeah, I, I, so I would say that probably referee, probably, well, at least statistically, referees are getting more right than they ever have done. Whether we perceive that or not is different. Mm. But on the other side of the coin, I do think that, Gunnar Punner makes a, a good point. I mean, when you're talking about accountability, the issue is you can demote Saturday's referee, but you've got to replace him with somebody. Yeah. And I'm just not sure there is a wealth and depth 
of quality referees. Bear in mind, this is a global league, really, played by players of every different nation. Um, I don't really see why the Premier League could not be more aggressive in recruiting well, the world's best referees. It's not a particularly diverse bunch, is it? You know, and, and the UK is a, a pretty diverse society. And the Premier League is certainly very diverse in terms of, um, you know, the players and where they come from and various heritages and all that kind of stuff. Mm. But all the referees come from a 25-yard or 25-mile <laughs> radius of Manchester, which is basically yeah. what it is. And that, you know, that can't be right. That can't be right. And I, ha I have a, a sense, certainly it's what I think, you know, yesterday's performance by Stuart Atwell was kind of um, not quite straw that broke the camel's back, but it feels to me anyway that so many things have gone against us um, in terms of officiating this season that this was like, ah, oh, no, this is fucking bullshit now. When you think about Tommy Asu, you know, getting his face stamped on and not getting a red card. When you think about James MacArthur booting Bukayo Saka in the most clear-cut red card offence you will ever see, accidental or not, it's still a red card offence. Tommy Asu being pulled back against Manchester United. Uh, clearly, if, if the level of scrutiny that was applied to Granit Xhaka's one yesterday had been applied to that one, then... It's a penalty, right? So there, there's, I think, a sense that um, we have been a little bit hard done by this season. And, and in games where the points that we have lost could prove to be really, really damaging when it comes to the end of the season. You know, we've still got a lot of time to, to make up. But, like, if Everton are playing with 10 men after 40 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever it was when Godfrey stood on the face of an Arsenal player and didn't get a right card. You know, mm -hmm. those fine margins can make a big difference in a season. I don't think we lose yesterday if we go down, um, if we stay with 11 men, for example. And and that that sense of injustice that we talked about that united people at the end, I don't think was entirely down to yesterday yesterday's refereeing performance. I think it was, in some ways, um, a culmination of a number of performances this season, which have rightly, I think, infuriated Arsenal fans. It's interesting, because, yeah, did you watch Match of the Day last night? I didn't, no. So... They took a very different tack to BT, where they were like, they looked at the referee decisions and they were like, you can make a case for why the referee, why the outcome was what it was on every single one. Right. And Ian Wright was part of that panel. And I was thinking, he's going to really lay into these officials. And he sort of sat there and was like, yeah, no, I can see why he didn't give that. I can see why he gave that. Mm. Um, it was a very moderate... Uh, I mean, I mean, they basically said they thought the ref got it all right. And um, I, I don't necessarily think that, but I do think that these decisions, for me, the decisions in the Man City game weren't sort of egregiously wrong. For me, the issue was they were decisions that really felt like they could have gone either way. And they all went against us. It was kind of a collective thing mm. rather than this is pure incompetence. That's just my perception. 
but it's so interesting like it's it's completely individual like it, when you listed all those events where we've been hard done by i genuinely just don't carry them with me like i don't think about them they're that, just not part of how i digest that is so interesting game. that is yeah. i mean that's really interesting um because like, like i'm i always um always how do i say this like i do carry them with me then that's part and parcel of w what i do um and how i yeah. think about things because i think that's most football fans to be yeah fair. yeah 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 um particularly things which are you know like i've i don't think i've ever seen a foul like the macarthur one on second mm. like the 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 one i can remember that was most like it was shawcross on ramsey it was that kind of a thing, you know, that kind of really, really, um, he, he kicked very, very hard. And that's why Ramsey's leg shattered. And I think Saka was lucky that it was the back of his leg and not the front, you know. Um, I can't remember a player who's had his face stamped on by an opponent and for nothing to happen to that, uh, the, the man who carried out that foul. Like that's mm. a, that's a sort of extraordinary. I think there's a level of a extraordinary incidents that we've been involved in that um you know maybe I need them for my own sense of injustice or whatever it might be but um I don't know but the thing is and I genuinely don't know the answer to this but I don't know how extraordinary they are within like if you watch every Premier League game do, do these things go on and we don't realize or like do we like do you carry the stuff that we get away with with you like, that would be an interesting question. I imagine the answer is probably not. What stuff, Rico? We don't get away with <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But but no, I know, I know we're not kicking people up in the air like Sacra every week. Mm. But yeah, it's just genuinely like... Um, it's all... I don't know what it is, but I, it's just not something that um, massively bothers me. I, I'm just very, very tolerating of referees. Makes me a terrible person, I guess. Yeah, you're part of the problem, man. I guess I'm. A, I guess I am. Yeah. The referee. It turns out it's not only Mikel Arteta and Josh Kroenke whose payroll I'm on. It's also the PGMOL. Yeah, you um, fucking ref lover. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, listen. I, I, I wish they were better. I do wish they were better. And I and I think the thing about hire the best people, make it a more attractive job, a more competitive job. Yeah. Uh, seems like a very logical way to improve it but i i do basically at a core level have a large degree of sympathy with quite how difficult what they're doing is i i yeah absolutely look i fully accept that it is a difficult job no two ways about it but i don't think the protection that they're awarded that's the wrong way of putting it i think there's there's a a cohort of people who will say well, refereeing is such a difficult job. Just accept it. Just, you know, accept the fact that they're going to make mistakes. It's a tough job. Everyone's screaming at you. Mm. Nobody likes you. Uh, yeah, I see that point of view. I absolutely do. And I don't doubt for a second that it's a difficult job. But at the same time, not seeking to implement measures which could raise the standards of officiating and thus... You know, the, 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 the other part of this is that if the officiating is better, the football is probably going to be better too. 
Like the football oh, spectacle no yeah. is going to be better. Um, I mean, we had a couple of questions here uh, while we're sort of on this. Um, let me see. Okay. Uh, from the Discord. Boom shakalaka. There's been some talk of the referee ruining the game by sending off Gabriel. Do you think it should be their responsibility to try and keep 22 players on the pitch? Do you think they consider this when they make these decisions? And then, um, let me see. Uh, yeah, also uh, on the Discord, Emil Smith Rowe, your boat, says, To what extent are pundits uh, missing the point about these refereeing decisions? The, pen the penalties and sendings off were all marginal calls, so they weren't necessarily wrong. But when each marginal call goes the way of the other team, isn't that just as galling as an egregious error? As Clive said on the Arsenal Vision podcast, which I haven't had a chance to listen to yet, uh, Atwell didn't have to send Gabriel off, especially since he wasn't showing City players yellow cards for anything. Are refs just missing common sense in some of these instances well i think this is where it gets really interesting because i completely agree that more common sense should be applied in football but common sense and an objective truth about what is and isn't mm. a yellow card don't necessarily sit hand in hand and i think every game has its own tempo its own politics it's earned dynamics i don't think you can referee a derby in the same way you can another game i actually am someone who sort of thinks that personality and subjectivity in a referee has value because i see the role as sort of orchestrating a game rather than being a robot mm. um but the issue is that when you go to the lengths of introducing things like VAR, I think you are implicitly striving for objectivity that you can never truly deliver. And that's why it's so unsatisfying. Mm. I mean, the Gabriel sending off, I think, is yeah. the quintessential example of why there ought to be uh, Sinbin. Yeah, I completely you know, agree. In In the heat of that moment... You can look. I'm not saying he was smart to do it, but you can kind of understand a foul, right? And if you're a referee and you know the game and whatever it is you played the game, you've got to understand the players and you've got to understand how they're feeling. And is what Gabriel did in that moment truly worthy of him missing the rest of the game? Arsenal and the whole next game and the whole next game and Arsenal being down to ten men. And the, the the spectacle of that football match, which was a great football match that we were all enjoying, is completely changed because now it's lopsided. The sporting mm. integrity, whatever you want to call it, is not there anymore. Like Arsenal have been quite harshly punished within the rules as they stand. We get it. But I don't think his offence should merit that kind of a sanction, right? Mm. And what could easily have happened or what should happen in a situation like that is the referee takes out his orange card or whatever it is and says, you're in the sin bin for 10 minutes, cool your head and come back and you can play the, the rest of the game. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, though, yeah. these these are the sort of changes I think that we can uh, we can think about and we can discuss when it comes to 
um, the standards of officiating because right now it's sort of black and white. It's either a red card or it's not a red card or it's a penalty or it's not. You know, he doesn't have any choice. There is no leeway. I, I realize as well that this will um, open up another layer of <laughs> uh, subjectivity where people will say, that's never an orange card. That's an absolute second yellow. That's You know, it will do, but why not give it a try? Because See, at the, yeah, at the uh, end yeah. of the day, people are paying a fucking fortune for their match tickets. They're paying a fortune for their TV subscriptions. You know, all of these kind of things. If you accept that at some level this is an entertainment medium as well as a sport, there should be some onus on maintaining the level of entertainment that you're giving people instead of killing a game because it's got hot in a couple of minutes because of a couple of incidents and one player has just very slightly lost his head. You know, I think there's a big discussion to be had there. Yeah, definitely. And the orange card is one way to do that. But I also think if you're... (laughs) It's interesting because all the calls are for uh, consistency, you know. But 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 actually, I think that in that situation, the benefit would be a bit of inconsistency. The benefit would be saying, I as a referee, I can look at that foul and mm. see that that objectively is probably a yellow card for the second one. But do I think that that plus what he did before? necessitates him being out of the game for for the remainder and missing the next game. And and I genuinely think a referee in that position should have the license to manage that situation and realize that he can go up to Gabriel and say you are on a fine line son. Yeah. You're lucky to not have gone off there. Ref got heat. Ref got heated up. That's what it was as well. Yeah, the ref got heated up. And and actually there was an interesting question about this. Um, I'll just have a quick look at it now. It's on the Discord. It said, Simon Party King said, did the players make their bed with the referee by surrounding him at every opportunity? I know we've been lauding the team standing up for itself, but is that particular habit starting to boil the piss of the refs? Do you think there might be something to do with that? Um, I, I think the player, I think the player's reaction to the penalty being given was in many ways um, driven by the referee's own reaction to the foul in real time. Mm. When he looked at it and saw it as a player, if not necessarily diving, but um, he wasn't fouled in order to make him go down. You know what I mean? So then all of a sudden the referee is changing his mind and they're saying, well, hang on a minute. You know, you <laughs> you were quite vociferous. You were quite obvious in what you thought of that incident when you saw it. And now, uh, you know, and of course, you're going to object when there's the potential of a penalty being given against you and all the rest of it. I think that's normal. But I don't think we started surrounding the referees until after that. I don't think there was any um, pressuring of referees or, or any of that uh, until such time as the game started to get heated uh, and after mm. Gabriel got sent off. I mean, Bakayo Saka got booked for... I think they said he gestured uh, or asked the referee why Rodri, it was probably Rodri, I don't know if it was, but some Man City player committed what I think was a borderline yellow card foul on Mm. on Lacazette, I think it was, where he just basically barged into him. And Saka asked the question and gets booked. Mm. Uh, You know, I don't really have any issue with us standing up for ourselves. I, I, I feel like we've been too passive and too nice. And I've said this before. Like, I don't want us chasing the referee around the pitch like the way um, 
Roy Keane did with Andy Durso that time, you know, with the veins popping out of his head or anything like that. But I think we we also need to, um, yeah, we need not to be pushovers. Um, sometimes that will go for you with a referee. Sometimes it won't. I guess you have to know the character of the referee. Like, I think if you you go around haranguing Mike Dean from the first whistle, you know you're going to get fuck all in the game. That's not smart, you know? Yeah, and I think you're right. The referee's temperature did raise here. That's why you booked Ben Gabriel for basically nothing on the first one. Um, Maybe we, maybe as a team, we misjudged that situation. But I wouldn't want to take that streak out of the team. I think it's been an important... Mm part of their development um, even if I think you could argue it did cost us um, yeah it, it, it's a really interesting one I, I think that the you know VAR is not going anywhere but it could certainly be refined the way it's being used and I think I think uh, trying to hire the best referees available you're doing it with the players mm. why would you not do it with the referees yeah yeah um, should we have a different question yeah why not Okay, so this is Sharath Prabhu on Twitter. And Sharath says, on a very different note, out of all the positive things to come out of the City match, which one is your favourite and why? I don't think there's sort of one thing in particular. I think it's just the fact that we were able to play that way against a team like Manchester City. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't... There were like loads of moments and things to be encouraged about. And we've talked about some of the individuals and we've talked about some of the um, the moments that they've been involved in. But I, I, for me, it's just a collective thing. It's not like like the goal was great. Some of the defending was great. I talked about Tommy Asu. Partey's performance was absolutely sensational. Um, you know, all of those things are are. are are great, but it's just as a whole, they did more than I thought they were going to be able to do. They did more than I was expecting them to do, and to they me, that's your expectations. Yeah. yeah, and to me, that's really encouraging. Which is why I was asking the question earlier. Like, even though they're down and out, and they're feeling absolutely shit about everything, um, when the final whistle blows. Uh, I don't think this will be a damaging defeat. I think this will be the the kind of defeat from which you can take a lot of encouragement as a team. I know, like, if I was imagining the, the, the worst-case possible scenario for everybody listening to this, that, like, if I was an Arsenal player and I'd played in that game yesterday, I'd be absolutely sick, but I'd still feel like the team had had gone somewhere that I didn't think it could go. And when that comes to the next game and other performances, it can only be a positive thing. Yeah. I mean, I think Ramsdale used the word fearless in his post-match interview and and that is the way they played. And that's um, hugely positive. My favourite thing is definitely that moment at full time when the fans sort of rose to give their appreciation Mm. for the players. And, I think, you know, um, that relationship has not been particularly healthy in recent years for lots of different reasons. But, like, you know, I love Arsenal, the club and the team and the players, and I love the fans too. 
and uh, I'm the child of divorced parents and sometimes it's just felt like I just want mum and dad to get along. Do you know what I mean? Like those two <laughs> entities, I just desperately want them to be happy together. And um, my parents aren't ever going to get back together, but it feels like the Arsenal fans and the Arsenal players are I, yeah. experiencing a kind of sec- a blossoming of their romance again. And that's... Lovely. Liz Taylor and Richard Burton getting married for a second time or third time or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. They, but they, they but, have been a bit estranged. Yeah, play. yeah, yeah. No, I, I I said this today on the blog that there, there is a connection. You can feel it. Like, you can, it's easy to feel connected to this team because they're trying their fucking best for you and you can reciprocate that if you're in the stands, if you're lucky enough to be at the games. You know, that that is a really important thing. And I know... It was maybe easy to be cynical when Mikel Arteta talked about this a lot, particularly during lockdown and at a period when the football we were playing wasn't great and the results weren't great. And, you know, when he talked about the fans, people, you know, could have taken a cynical view and said, well, of course, he's going to talk like that. You know, he wants to keep them on side. But at the same time, you can you can feel that it is important for the fans and the team to be as united as they can possibly be. Games mm. like yesterday, it's evident from the crowd, the way they reacted in the stands. You know, this... I I, I genuinely love when it's us against them. Mm. I love the sense of us against them. And it's you only get it really when you're good or when you're potentially good or, or, you know, nobody cares about a team that isn't going to do anything. So to have a sense of it's us against the world, I really like that. I've always mm. liked that. I've always liked that about Arsenal. You know, Arsene Wenger's red card shame. Fuck off. Mikel Arteta's... 100 Premier League yeah, red cards, by the way, yesterday. First, first team ever to do it. Yeah, well done. You know, I like it. Red cards, go fuck yourselves and your fucking red cards. Uh, you know, we're, we're not a dirty team by any stretch of the imagination. And some people have all, you know, viewed the, the number of sendings off as like, oh, Arsenal, you know, they're fucking, you know, they're a dirty side or whatever it might be. Um, I, I like that. And I think that was something that we could take from yesterday as well. I like the unification of the fans against a common enemy, uh, if that's not... Um, over-egging the pudding a little bit, you know? But that's the way you've got to look at it from a footballing perspective. <laughs> Every team you play is the enemy, and it should be that. And and it is slightly damaging and destructive when, for, for reasons I think we all understand, the it feels like there's infighting, if that make, makes sense. You know, we can all mm. understand why, but it's no good. It's not good. And this is much better yeah. and it's far preferable. So, Completely agree. Magnus Holmberg, at Magnus Holmberg, uh, at uh, Magnus underscore Holmberg, I apologize, says, hey guys, not to have the usual Xhaka debate, but with fine margins defining the outcome of games, can any club afford to have a player, Xhaka or otherwise, with a target on their back? Should the weight of his reputation in itself be enough to replace him next summer? I think this is a really interesting Yeah, it's a really discussion. good point. Um, can, can I ask you this? Do you think that 
the fact it was Xhaka who made the foul, if you like, for the Man City penalty had a bearing on how it was viewed. I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. Mm. I mean, it's impossible for it to not, right? Whether or not someone's able to discount that, but he has enough baggage that it mm. it it travels with him into every situation. Um, I mean, I think you could even make the point of is are is his are his flaws as a player so universally known that it factors into Bernardo taking the decision to pull mm. off that move in the penalty box against him? You know, is he already thinking? Well, I'm going to swing this outside him and start going to ground because it's Granite Shaka, and the chances are I'll be quicker than him, and he'll stick a leg out. Mm. Um, and and with referees and with officials, I think we know now that he carries that baggage. Um, is that in itself enough of a factor to move on from him? No, but I think I think amongst other things, it's certainly something that you should consider. Mm. And I'm sure they must. It's interesting, isn't it? I, 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 was, um, I was speaking to Amy Lawrence on Hamburg Off earlier today, and, and she said, I wonder if, you know, Mikel Arteta and Arsene Wenger and all these managers who pick Granite Xhaka time and time again, I, when he does the Granite Xhaka stuff, the bad stuff, basically, I wonder how they feel. Like, do they feel as exasperated as us? Um, mm. what is that moment like? Do, you know, is there a kind of internal, oh, for fuck's sake, Granite? Um, there must be. There must be. Essentially, it would be impossible for Mikel Arteta, Edu, everyone at Arsenal to not be aware of yeah. the the problems with Shaka as well as the positives. And so... I'm sure that will factor in any decision they make over what they do in that area of the pitch. Mm. I, st I still think Arsenal will sign a central midfielder in the next six months, certainly before the start of next season. And I think it will be somebody uh, to start in that position. Mm. What do you think? I, I just think it is a really interesting uh, aspect to a player when there is, or when he has a reputation you know, yeah. some of it's some of it's deserved and some of it maybe isn't. But like you say, he's got plenty of baggage. There have been plenty of incidents in the past where he has been clumsy and he has been given uh, given away penalties and he has made challenges which are a little too robust or whatever. And, and people come to associate, like you don't get the benefit of the doubt. There comes a point where you no longer get the benefit of the doubt. And then it becomes a question of... Uh, can you offset that or does he offset that enough with what it, what what else he does. Mm -hmm. I mean, we it's talk like about a player who's a serial diver, right? You know, it's like after a while, they're going to stop getting free kicks. Mm. And even if they cut out the diving, they're probably not getting a free kick for mm. a long time. And it's not the same situation, but it's a similar thing. There is a perception of Shaka that exists, but I don't want to just sort of, I don't want to just adhere to the line of, oh, it's all perception. I mean, you know, he's still making mistakes out there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, like it, it's perception maybe plays into the decision to award the penalty yesterday, but I would argue whether it's Granite Xhaka or it's Thomas Partey or anybody else, for me, it is a penalty. Yeah, look, we talked about his role in the goal, and I think after we went down to 10 men, his defensive work was really good. He blocked I, I, a couple I, I, of shots, yeah. apart from the one moment where 
he decided to go chasing around the pitch. It wasn't long, actually, after the red card. And yes, he went that was pressing unwise. And he went running around, and I was going, oh, just stop, stop, because he was... I think he was genuinely like a couple of strides away from running himself into a second yellow card. He yeah. just about stopped after he chased down the goalkeeper and everything else, and he got pulled. You know, he shouldn't be doing that when we're down to 10 men. You know, stay in your lane. Um, but, yeah. Literally, I, yeah. yeah. Yeah, literally. Um, which, when he did, he was good. I, uh, I mean, yeah, I thought uh, people hate when you say stuff like this, but I thought, apart from the penalty incident, I thought he was very good. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, that's the thing. Like, uh, yeah. what was the analogy I used on the blog? Like, he's the postman who delivers your mail uh, every day of the week, fine, but like every couple of months, he just throws a brick through your front window. Uh, you know, and, and that's the <laughs> yeah. thing. There is a, there's, when, when, when he makes a mistake, it's not usually a small one. No. And actually, I have to say, as someone who, um, I'd say I've stood up for him because I think that there is something to be said for his role in the group. I think that stuff does matter. And so I, I understand the status mm. that he holds within the squad. But in the last three or four, maybe even five games, there's been a moment in the second half where I've thought, oh, why have you done that? And, and it's happened with some consistency. We used to talk about, oh, like every seven games or every 10 games yeah. we'll do something stupid. But, there, you know, whether it be a needless challenge or a booking for a confrontation he didn't necessarily need to get into or a foul in the penalty box... Um, and there are different justifications for all these things. You know, he's left isolated, he's standing up for a teammate, whatever it might be. He is just an absolute lightning rod for trouble. Mm. And um, yeah, at some point you, you have to you have to think about that when you're of thinking about your team. And but the, the reality is, um, in the next few weeks, I mean, we lose Thomas Partey now, mm. so uh, he's going to be very important in the immediate term. But I, 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 I think Arsenal were exploring the idea of moving on from Granit Xhaka last summer. Or, or yeah, like moving on from, let's say. Um, and, I, and I think they will again next summer. Hmm. And I think they will in January if, it's, if, it, if, they, you know, if they can get the right guy. I think they will do it. But I think it's more likely something that would be addressed in the summer. A slight question on a tangent from this then. Silent Fox one who's on the Discord, says, what's your preferred central midfield pairing with Partey going to AFCON? Of course, Mohamed Elneny going to AFCON as well. So, Is it is it well, a straight Albert Sambi Lukonga in for Partey swap? It's interesting, isn't it? Because the, the shape of the midfield has slightly changed where Partey has been the guy... Uh, operating, mm. I think, in those deeper areas a lot of the time, taking the ball off the defence. Shaka's been a bit higher up. Do you... Oh, this is sort of a rhetorical question, but feel free to answer it. Do you trust Lakonga in that role? Um, you know, do you trust Shaka in that role mm. right in front of the defence? It's. I'm not sure of the exact configuration of how you'd work it, but I think Lakonga is the obvious choice. And I, I almost, it feels almost, and I mean, I know he's had an illness, but I also feel like 
he's almost been sort of saved for this period. I um, wonder, I wonder, have they been working with him on, on yeah. that, you know, because I think there's a, what's the word Arteta likes to use, uh, use specificity to the roles that the players are instructed to carry out. So I wonder if the fact he hasn't played a great deal of late, um, look, party has been in and has been improving over the last few weeks, so that's good, but I wonder if it's something that they've been prepping him for. You know, they knew Partey was going to be going away. They knew uh, they were going to need a solution. So maybe that's it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, would you pick Lukonga too to replace Partey? I mean, I think so. I don't know what choice you've got, really. I mean, well, you've made Niles, and that's the other. That's basically it. Or you, you maybe reconfigure. Mm. You know where you play. Shaka with Odegaard and maybe Smith Rowe ahead of him. I mean, that's one mm. way you could do it, but I don't know if we should really tinker that much. It feels a little bit like, you know, last season when we moved Shaka to left back, too many other parts were um, affected by that decision. Um, mm. So, yeah, things have been going pretty well. So, stick with more or less, stick with what's working. Party for Lakonga, it's not like for like, but it's similar. Yeah, I think, I think, and I think he's got the potential to play that role mm. in the future. And let's see how he how he gets on. Uh, this is slightly different tack from PMCC two three two on Discord. Simple one: Are we downplaying the League Cup semi finals too much? Is winning a trophy a big step for this group? Well, it certainly wouldn't hurt. Uh, it really wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't say no. No, I definitely yeah. wouldn't say no either. Um, yeah, with a couple of questions about this. I mean, can you really downplay a two-legged semi-final against Liverpool? Like that's not the kind of fixture. Even if they're going to rotate, and they will to some extent, they're still going to put out a strong team. I know they don't have Salah and they don't have Mane, but. We don't have Partey and we don't have um, Pepe and we don't have Aubameyang. Whether we'll ever have him again remains to be seen, you know. So squads aren't so deep that that uh, Jurgen Klopp is just going to play all the kids. I don't think that's the case. And when you get to the semi-final stage of a a competition, you've got to take it seriously. No two ways about it. And I think we'll be pretty strong for the first leg. Um, I know there's an FA Cup game at the weekend as well. We might rotate a little more for that, but I think we'll be fairly strong. So, I think we'll be I, stronger for Thursday than Sunday, yeah, let's put it like that. I agree, and I, I don't know that you can downplay it. Um, we only have three competitions that we can win, or three trophies to play for this season, and two, realistically, realistically, two. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think we're going to go for it. I think we're going to go for it and and winning a trophy. If these guys can go all the way and win in a final, what a brilliant thing that would be, you know, for for very obvious reasons, because you've won a trophy um, and you've won a final and you've stood up and you've done it on on a big stage and everything else. But I, I think as well for the development of the team and for the belief in it and the belief that they will have in themselves and everything else, like, I don't think... I don't think Arsenal win the league at Anfield in 1989 if they don't win the Littlewoods Cup or Coca-Cola Cup or whatever it was at that point in 1987. You know, when they beat Liverpool 
in the final at Wembley, two goals from Charlie Nicholas. I think small things like that are formative. Small things, do you hear me? Things like that are formative. You know, mm. at the end of the day, there are very few trophies and a lot of teams. So if you can be one of the teams that's got a trophy at the end of the season, then great. So Yeah, and, and while Arteta has won a trophy before mm. uh, at Arsenal, a lot of these players have not. And mm. I mean... To underline the degree of change that happened since then, Bukayo Saka didn't even get off the bench that day in mm. that FA Cup final. So uh, I think it would be a massive thing for the group. I think Arsenal will go pretty strong Thursday. Yeah. I don't think there will be many changes. Gabriel will be suspended for that one, I believe. Um, yeah. But I don't, yeah, I don't see loads of, and Partey obviously will go off to AFCON, but I don't see loads of changes. I think we will sense an opportunity I mean this is a Liverpool that won't have um, Salah and Mane presumably mm. they've got other Covid problems in the squad yeah I, a, I think there's a chance yeah I think there is a a need to sort of try and regain some momentum if at all possible you know yeah I think in a way it's a good fixture to have now because we we come out of that City game feeling like we really performed and we deserved more. Well, if we want to prove our point, you know, that we can hang with the big boys, mm. we've got a great chance on Thursday. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me see. Did I have one more? I think I had... Oh, that's a bit of a depressing one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll ask you anyway. Um, yeah, go on. FPL Manatee says, we have some unbelievable young talent, but how concerned are you that the likes of Smithrow, Saka and Martinelli might be poached by a, a City or a Liverpool? Should we be realists and plan for this eventuality just as Liverpool had a plan with the Coutinho money? Do you know, someone else, I've, I tweeted last night saying, you know, something very sort of uh, sentimental about how proud how much you I love was referees. And how much I love referees. And I just thought all the refereeing was brilliant. Um, <laughs> but, and somebody uh, replied, I can't find it now. Bless. Who was it? Damn. But um, they, uh, ah, yes, here we go. Philosopher on Twitter. Philosopher. Philosopher. Um, they said, honestly, I'm getting anxious about these players staying together, which I haven't experienced since around 2011. And it is a good point, you know, when you're when you've got something good, yeah, uh, you do start to project and worry. <laughs> but that's um, it. I mean, uh, how many, how many, how long did we spend fretting over the future of like Vieira and yeah. Perez and Fabregas and Van Persie and play because they're fucking good players? It was never the same with Mustafi. You know, we weren't oh. worried about him being poached. <laughs> I, 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 I would have poached, <laughs> boiled, fried, scrambled, whatever you want to do. Mustafi is fine by me. Yeah, I think um, I think it is a, a little bit of a worry. I don't think we're quite there yet. I think that there's a lot of players here under long-term contract, and I do think that uh, the next few years, I think, will be mm. relatively insulated against that. I think if we fall short uh, in that period, it might be something to consider. But I have to be honest and say that when you look at how effective our recruitment has been since January of last year when we brought Martin Odegaard in on loan and the summer that we had after that mm. 
it maybe doesn't fill me with quite the fear it might have done a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and that's part of football, you know? It's all about being good, really. You keep your good players if you're a good team and if they feel they can win things, if they feel like they can go somewhere and achieve their ambitions in the game with Arsenal, then, you know, it's much more difficult for the likes of Liverpool or Man City or whoever might be, you know, top of the table or whatever, to lure them away. Because they're like, well, this is my club. I'm not going to you. But if Arsenal are struggling or what have you. Um, I, I thought this is a final question. I, I think it's a two-word answer. Um, I, I'm going to challenge you to get it. Uh, Peter Hust, uh, at Peter Hust, says, Happy New Year, gents. Uh, Happy New Year to you. In 2020... Arsenal signed players like Pablo Marie, Cedric, Willian and Alex Runison. But then in 2021, it was a near-perfect summer window with six brilliant signings who have all made an impact. What do you think has changed from one year to the next? <laughs> uh, do you want me to say Raul Sanier? <laughs> Far be it for me to put words in your mouth, but that was what I thought. Well, I... I've actually got a, better, a longer answer to this. Go on, then. But I don't know if it's worth doing. Raul! Well, I think that um, that is part of it. I, I, I think that Edu... So I, I think Edu is... Um, deserves a lot of credit, actually. And I know people will have question marks over that because he was party to some decisions that a lot of fans did not like but I think you have to give people credit when they appear to uh, adapt and change and if I think back to say for example the culling of the scouting team which felt like an idiotic and disastrous move at the time and you look at that 18 months on and the more streamlined approach Arsenal have taken, mm. I think you have to say that maybe it was necessary. And I, I basically think that Edu is not Sven Mislintat. He is not a uh, you know brilliant diamond-eyed scout who's out there picking the best players. But I, I, my increasing impression is that what he is is someone who's incredibly personable and quite adept at um, putting structures in place. And basically, what you've got at Arsenal now is plenty of smart people working for Edu that he's prepared to listen to. And even down to like the data side, data is a, as big a part of the recruitment process at Arsenal now as it has ever been. Mm. And... What I'm saying is that in that role as technical director, sometimes we think we need like a genius. We need like a maverick, Ralph Ranick or Sven Mislintat. And that can be true. But also maybe it's okay in that role to just be a good, uh, intelligent, adept manager of people and organisations. And that is my impression of the situation at Arsenal now. Mm. The organisation is very coherent. Everybody feels like they're on the same page. The sharing of information, the sharing of data is really strong. And there is a clear process. And when a signing is made, whatever anybody's individual arguments about that player during that process, 
there's a sort of collective acceptance of we followed our process and this is where we got to. Um, that's an inter- That's a much more interesting answer. Thank you. <laughs> no, genuinely, yeah, and I, I think it probably merits more discussion at some point. Yeah, I, I, I just think that um, I've slightly changed. I was very worried, I have to say, during all the kind of Kia Jarabchian, mm. uh, very agent-led stuff. I don't mind saying, I was, de- and as any listeners will know, I had real concerns about that. I, it seems to me that Edu has... Either learn very quickly that that's just not going to fly at Arsenal, and I suspect that is part of it, but also has now had time to implement structures, procedures, stuff. And like now, Arsenal are hiring scouts, real-life in-person scouts across Europe in different regions. The structure now that it sort of exists is being built out again, but in a much more coherent way. How many times over the years did we hear about like this this player was a stat DNA signing and this one was a Kagigao signing mm. and they never wanted Mustafi, but they did. And these guys picked El Nenny, but the others said oh, no. There's so, so many stories around that. Think right. about one matter and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, in like and infighting and sort of like departments being like not on the same page. And where I have to give Eddie credit is that in going through a big cull of people, he has created a recruitment structure in which and these things change but as things stand i think everybody feels that they have a voice and feel like they're working towards the same goal and Mm. while edu himself we might have question marks over you know his relationships or him as an individual but there is a there is a management skill to that that i think he deserves some credit for even if it's just listening to the opinion of smart people and knowing when to mm. trust them. I thought the Mertesacker quote last week was so interesting. What did he say? He basically said, we lost our way. Mm. Paraphrasing, they were trying to implement that, yeah. quick fixes or, you know, the 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 sort of Socrates style signings, you know, 29-year-old Willian signings. You know, they were trying to get back into the top four understandably in a way by bringing in experienced players who they felt could sort of bridge that gap. Um, mm-hmm. But that was not really a, a good way of doing it as we saw. Um, but but for somebody that high up, you know, as the academy manager and as somebody who's part of the football executive crew at Arsenal who works, you know, alongside Arteta um, and Edu and, and all the rest of them to say we have lost or we lost our way tells you a lot um and as we can and see it took time yeah, yeah. it definitely took time to sort of sift through the wreckage of that and go through a period of renewal mm. in like in staff terms in structure terms in all terms but i think um we are in a much healthier place and that's why when you get to conversations about like what if we lost Saka or what if we lost martinelli if you are a we hope that doesn't happen but b if you are prepared and if you have strategy then that's less frightening, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you can find a way, like you're not going to get another Saka uh, out of your academy straight away. But yeah, I think you're right that if if losing one piece leaves you, you know, in bits, um, it doesn't speak to how well organised you are behind the scenes, um, you know, in general. So, 
Um, yeah, I think this is... But be prepared to throw all this out when we sign Coutinho next week um, for 100 million or something. Oh, well, no. I, can't, I mean, he couldn't. We can't. It won't. I don't want to think about that. You know the way you don't want to think about referee <laughs> things? I don't want to think about that. Um, okay. All yeah. right. I think we should leave it there for now because we have uh, had a, a very... Um, uh, lengthy chat about everything that's going on so uh, once again happy new year to you James happy new year to all of you listening uh, may 2022 be a, a far superior year than 2021 I hope uh, you stay happy and healthy and successful and thank you as always for being here we really appreciate it we will have an Arsecast Extra on Friday actually after the first leg of the Liverpool uh, Carabao Cup semi-final so join us for that we'll have some more stuff on Patreon during the week as well uh, until the next one take it easy Bye-bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.